Originally envisioned as a second feature, but at the same time struggling with historical truths and imposing roster of characters, this would, film would lead Coppola to begin work on a parallel project which in turn evolved into Lost in Translation, a film whose success would in turn revamp this project. Setting out to create not another stuffy costume drama with Marie Antoinette, Coppola here blends contemporary with traditional as lavish gowns and powdered wigs, a soundtrack to a combination of new wave and post-punk. Here, the film follows the life of Marie Antoinette from her marriage to Louis XVI through to the fall of the House of Versailles. With Coppola drawing inspiration from Evelyn Lever and Antonia Fraser's biographies of Antoinette to craft a film which is less of a history lesson but instead more of a rich girl fantasy as Coppola here focuses on the life of a queen and the people in Antoinette's life. I'm Owen. You listen to Moves and Tea. Well, let's take it to the booth. everyone to another exciting edition of Movies and Tea. Uh, tonight we are going to be looking at Sofia Coppola's third film, Marie Antoinette, a diversive title to say the least, and this film being released in 2006, Heart on the Hills of Lost in Translation, a film which not only introduced her to the world properly after the you know, sort of uh, middling success of Virgin Suicides here with Lost in Translation, she had truly established herself as a directorial force, and everyone was very keen to see how she would follow it up, and certainly a lavish historical epic was certainly perhaps not the film that we were expecting, but here we are, um, a film which I think a lot of people either liked or they disliked, it sort of fell very much in between, and certainly for myself, um, a film that's I've ranked very low in her filmography, but at the same time as we've found since compiling the show, there's people such as The Ven over at uh, Cinema Recall who've ranked this as one of Coppola's best, which of course makes it all the more interesting when we come to this re-evaluation, which obviously we're doing over the course of this season of her work. Um, now, Kim, I mean, was this the first time watching yourself, or...? <laughs> yeah, from now on, all the movies are first-time watches. So, yes, Marie Antoinette actually has been on my, you know, movies that I should see, but I haven't gone around to. Okay. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not in the party of uh, the Vern. <laughs> 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 I, I don't know. I mean, it was a very, I don't know. Like, it, it, it didn't have the depth of the first two films. And it didn't, it didn't also, like really dedicate itself to the historical drama but then you know there were all these little aesthetics i would call it i guess you know soundtrack and color scheme and all that sort of stuff which is and you know some of like the just how the the whole cinematography of it was done that is really nice but i'm just not a big fan of historical dramas and this one was really you know not even very much historical drama it was <laughs> Like you said, a rich girl's fantasy, right? Yeah, I mean, when it certainly comes to costume drums, it's not certainly not something that uh, really holds my interest. I mean, obviously, being a Brit, it's all we seem to churn out these days is just another costume drama and an excuse for people to dress in stockings and bustiers uh, seems to be our thing at the moment, rather than producing anything really sort of with any sort of grit to it. Um, and it's kind of interesting when it comes to my internet. I mean, I no real historical grounding for this this figure um i know that she's rather disliked and certainly in terms of french history 
And Coppola herself was exactly the same. She had no real clue about Marie Antoinette. She just had this sort of fascination with the character and what she sort of represented that she wanted to set out and make this movie. So she entered into this film with like no idea about the history of um, Antoinette or anything like that at all. And somehow she sort of like sets out to craft this film, which is not going to be a history lesson. It's going to be very much just a film shown through the eyes of uh, Antoinette and the people around her and just sort of create this sort of piece of a piece of time uh, but at the same time allowing herself like the artistic freedom to you know throw in a new wave <laughs> track or if she wants to like use a, um, a, a song by The Cure let's we'll throw that in the soundtrack so it's got this very contemporary edge mm. and I think that's what makes it so complex and it very much surprised me the fact when you look at the film that it's got this sort of grandeur and scale of this of the sort of epics that were more associated with her father, Francis, than we would associate with her work, which are often, as we said before, the very intimate works. But here we've got like cast of thousands and we've got all these, uh, we've got a costume department, which is working 24 hours a day just to keep up the demands that the productions put on. I mean, they were using like eight costume houses just to supply the costumes for this, for this production. And it's so lavish and grand in scale. I mean, they're shooting in, in the House of Versailles. So it's all been shot on location in France. And I couldn't help but wonder whether... How much of that was to do with, obviously, the success of Lost in Translation? How much is to do with the fact that her father, Francis, is the producer here? And whether that's responsible, once again, for opening more doors than she would have had mm. open to her... Just, as, just from the fact of being an independent director... Every, it certainly gives the film this sort of like feel of uh, realism to it that you wouldn't get if this was all done on sets. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's always it's always you know something that I enjoy is you know when you're able to shoot on location. Um, it's always something you know, especially because uh, when you think about you know, you know, just indies and a lot of other movies in general, they. You know, even even bigger films that we have nowadays. You know, when you're when you're shooting in New York, you're actually on like uh, a decorated, modified Montreal street or something. Yes. <laughs> or like France's, you know, old Montreal. <laughs> You'd be surprised how Montreal is everywhere in movies now. <laughs> so when you can actually find someone who can really, you know, have you know the ability to go somewhere and shoot on site for you know a film like this, it. You know, even if it's not close to history, it still gives it um, a much nicer feel. It's not like, you know, you close a door and then it looks like the building's going to fall apart or something like that. Um, and there's still that grandeur. There's nothing that, you know, you can you can't replace the Versailles, right? You, you can't you can't replace the castle. You can't you can't replace all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think that that's really nice. Uh, but. I don't know. I mean, you were talking about, you know, the contrast of contemporary and modern. And I was I was like thinking about it a lot while I was watching it. How, you know, one of the best parts of the movie, if it didn't have the soundtrack and was would 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 have really changed how the movie would have felt because it gives it this very like more lighthearted feeling to this story of this woman who 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 also I guess also defines the tone of the movie itself, because Marie Antoinette feels like she goes into France and she sees all these things that happen and they seem to her at one point, she's like, this is ridiculous. Yes. You know, <laughs> and, and yet no one seems to say that it is, right? And and everything, you know, you just see from like, I've never noticed before because, I don't know, I've never felt like Kirsten Dunst is like a super great actress. Um, at least not in the beginning of her career. I haven't seen anything more recent. Uh, but I mean, like, I never felt like she was such a great actress, but in this one, I actually, I really appreciated her as Marie Antoinette because she had these like little impressions when she, because a lot of her character was, you know, not a lot of talking because it's very, you know, uh, it could be just this Coppola because her characters don't usually talk a lot and they observe more. Um, you know, it made Marie Antoinette into like the fact that she would do these little, um, little, little expressions that would kind of like make it like really show how she felt like this was ridiculous you know there were these like awkward smiles with uh with with her husband and then there would be like this you know 
every morning she would wake up with a bunch of people opening the curtains <laughs> and she'd be like, oh God, what this is again, right? <laughs> oh, definitely so. And I think when you look at the film, I mean, it can really be split into the first, into really two halves. We've obviously got her her life prior to becoming queen where she's, I mean, she, when she's introduced, she's supposed to be 14, 14 years old. Yeah. Which obviously she's not because she's very clearly in her in her twenties, the same as um, Jason Schwartzman. And here she's she's married off to she's brought across from Austria to be married across to um, King Louis. Um, sorry, the King Louis's uh, grandson, and it's really just a political move. It's to form this retain this bond between France and Austria. Um, so it's not really about romance at all, it's just purely a political move. And she's, as I said, she's brought in from this life uh, where she's very sort of privileged to begin with, but then she's brought, when she's brought into Versailles, it's this whole other level entirely, and she's got to learn all these new rules, such as um, the scene when uh, she first wakes up in wakes up in the palace, and I, I just really love this sequence entirely. It's probably one of my highlights of the scene and she's like oh you you can't get yourself changed it's falls to the highest ranking person in the room to help you change and the fact they have to constantly stop starting she has she's completely naked but they have to keep stop starting because a <laughs> higher ranked person keeps entering the room and you can see um oh it, you can see in the her sort of like handler this 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 exasperation it's sort of like oh can we just get on with this do we have to really be following these rules and it and uh and the fact that it's all like you know it's all tradition and you know these are everything has to be followed in rules and so it's just like when she's sitting down to breakfast it's like um when you take a a drink you don't put it on the table you have to put it back on to this tray being held by this waiter and you're having people constantly waiting on you hand and foot and everything you're doing will be for an audience there's no less than at least 30 people in a room, with, like, be it you waking up or having breakfast, whatever you do, there's, there's people waiting or observing you. They just want to be surrounding you in your aura. And this is even before she becomes queen. It's quite amusing seeing her adjusting to this life. And then, obviously, when we get into the second half, and she just really becomes the embodiment of, this, of Antoinette that we obviously know in this sport princess who lavishes um, her status and position as she sort of like spends her time hanging around with her ladies in waiting and just you know drinking and hanging out in the countryside and just generally having a good time while France is falling into revolution and falling apart while she's sort of like frivolously spending money on just a whim and gambling and things so it's a really interesting just to evolution of a character and I think Certainly, when it comes to Kirsten Dunn's performance, I think she perfectly captures that. She captures the innocence of when she's introduced to the palace and at the same time is able to capture and embody what many people associate this character to be. So, um, yeah, I, I think definitely, like, when you talk about the highlight of Marie Antoinette, I think that, you know, Kirsten Dunst is. A really good like it's a it's a good choice for the character and it's also because the character is written so well I guess that she's you know the development of her character works really well in the sense that you know you follow her and you have you know you see a real contrast as she you know gets used to the I guess you know this uptight French society and she slowly kind of finds her way around especially you know after she be she actually has a kid <laughs> after she's able to birth a child because she's able to convince her husband to finally you know <laughs> finally sleep with her be intimate with her yeah so you know that that's like you know um you know i think that's that was that was one of the things that was the most questionable because for the longest time it felt like you know what is what is the deal with you know this louis character why is he not you know <laughs> interested um, you know, because he knows the rules more than she does. And he also is, should be aware that, you know, if they don't consummate their love, they cannot, they're not like officially married according to what they were saying. And, you know, the letters and mom and, you know, her mom and all that stuff that was, you know, going back and forth about, you know, telling her that she has to lock down this, <laughs> this man to make things to, to, you know, secure her spot as queen. 
Oh, definitely so. And I think certainly the political games um, are certainly what makes the first half so so interesting because she's yeah. constantly receiving these messages like, you know, as you said, she's got to lock down her, her marriage. Otherwise, you know, he may get bored and move on to something else. He may replace her, which in turn is going to affect this this arrangement between Austria and France, which is obviously not something they want. And at the same time, she's got further pressure because her brother and sister have been married off into equal positions of power and they're able to bear children. And she's sort of the last one who's sort of like not fulfilling her part of the arrangement, so to speak. And it's it's certainly when you look at her relationship with, with, with Louis, who for the first half he's played like he may actually be gay, and they, yeah, he's got more interest yeah. in going hunting and, you know, his interest in locksmithery and, and just hanging out with his male friends than he does in, in Antoinette, who's, you know, she's this beautiful girl. And when she's obviously been brought into the fold and she's been given all these lavatories, she's only sort of has her beauty sort of heightened. Um, and yet he, he never seems to be interested. He always, like, makes excuses and seems overly awkward, which I think when you got Jason Schwartzman playing the role as Coppola's cousin because this was a real family affair I mean her father's producing, her brother Roman's doing second unit directing and obviously here we've got Schwartzman um, here playing a lead, the lead male role and he's also a really interesting comparison when we compare him to his grandfather um, here played by Rip Torn who is just fantastic and uh-huh. um, he's kind of a deviant because he's Carrying on with his mistress, player played by um, Asia Argento, mm-hmm. again daughter of uh, Dario Argento, and it. I wish that Asia and Coppola would just work together more because she's so good in this film. And originally she was supposed to be played by. Um, oh, she was supposed to be played by um, Angelina Jolie, who dropped out to go and film The Good Shepherd. Don't know why, but still. Um, and then they were going to bring in. Um, Catherine Zeta-Jones, but she chose not to, and in the end they brought in Adria Argento, who perfectly embodies this character of uh, King Louis' mistress. And as a mistress, she's supposed to be, you know, they're accepting the fact that the king has allowed a mistress to fulfil certain desires that his queen perhaps may not, but at the same time, they're being forced to accept her at royal gatherings and as you know, that he's quite happy to carry on with her in public. It's before it was expected that if you have a mistress, you keep her away in the countryside somewhere. You don't have her on full display in public. And yet she's here as very, as he's very clearly his favorite. And they ha- what surprised me more is the fact that you have this weird sex scene where they pretend to be cats, which doesn't at all seem creepy. It seems it seems vaguely erotic, and it's all sort of like, how the hell did you manage to make this scene? Because he's very clearly older, and she's this you know this enchanting young thing, and yet this doesn't seem creepy like in when we look at Alexander, where we have pretty much the same sort of scene. It, it you know it seems like perfectly acceptable, and this that they vibe really well off each other, which is never seems to happen when we have like the older actor, you know. Com- uh, conversing with uh, with the young actress. Yeah, and and on a deeper level, actually, that scene comes, you know, right after this, you know, awkward moment of, you know, where um, Marie Antoinette is trying to get, you know, get things going, and nothing happens. They just gotta smile at each other, right? Um, <laughs> and then you turn over and you go over to this scene, and and you're just kind of like, wow, with their the older folks are having a wilder time than these two people here. <laughs> well, even at the dinner parties, they're like, he's making out and she's there. Oh, she's completely offending everyone at the table because the fact she just belches and she's got no class compared to these other, these other sort of uh, members of aristocracy. And they're, they're openly gossiping about her, which I absolutely love. And she does not care in the slightest. Um, yet, her mother encourages Antoinette to form this relationship with uh, the mistress because she knows that, you know, if she seems to be friends with her, then it's going to give her this in inroad because, you know, the, the king will further approve of her. And I mean, the king from the start, I think he, he's... I just love how dissimilar a deviant is. The fact he openly talks about looking at women's bosoms before their faces and it's sort of like, well... Good for you, and I think only Rip Torn could get away with that sort of character. It's a very specific sort of actor, 
And to see Riptorn doing a classical role is just even more genius casting here because normally he's just these blustering types. And I think he, there's, there's very few actors, especially of uh, the older generation, that you can get away with just being such an open pervert like that. So, <laughs> um, so but... Yeah, I love how the film also opens. The fact we we get this shot of what we what many people associate as Antoinette. You know, she's there lounging, surrounded by cakes, and she's this. You know, she's surrounded in like in this vibrant sort of gown, and then we cut to her as an insight. And I did obviously when I saw that opening shot, I was like, oh, that's how Kim tends to podcast. So what <laughs> I was like, I was gonna post uh, that screenshot, and it's like just say this is how you normally podcast. So. Good to see that being represented. <laughs> <laughs> Wefting around the place. <laughs> and it makes, as I said, it makes an interesting uh, contrast when we obviously go from that scene of what you associate her with the character to her then being this form of instance. But just that opening shot, it's not her as the spoiled role that we come to see her as in the second half of the film. Here she's, it's you know, it's this sense of like attraction and a lore to her character we've yet to have all the all the uh sort of background that goes goes with it we just sort of seen here and it's like this glimpse of what we can expect once we enter the house of versailles that it's going to be you know lavish cakes and more equally more lavish gowns and i have to say that the film just in terms of eye candy does some does an astonishing job and lance accord cinematography again just really coming into effect here and um I mean, going into this film, I mean, I have to say, I have to obviously ask, what did you think of just like the the cinematic eye candy we have here, and just the sheer amount of food porn, especially? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of you know all this stuff that revolves around food and filming food <laughs> and all that sort of um, glamorous stuff. So I, you know. While I think that the second half of the film didn't, you know, when we were really into that whole like you know, lavish lifestyle was a bit, you know, it was a bit overboard, I guess. And it felt a bit more empty than I guess the first part. Um, it was really cool how it was shot. Like it was really, really fun to watch all this stuff. And then you have all these like, uh, uh, macarons and all that stuff that's just around. And you just, you know, you see cakes and even like from before, like in the beginning, you still have food and there's always some kind of cake around her and that sort of stuff. So, it's really nice, you know, when you when you start cycling through all these things, and then you know it it's just it's just you know the cinematic work here is done where you're not just looking at her consuming everything, but you're looking at kind of like, you know, um, you know the the whole shopping element where you just look watching them like um, go through the place like from a low angle at the shoes and the feet and stuff like that walking around, and you have like you know. The whole, like, uh, you know, food is shot from up above going downwards and then just cycles through. And then you have a lot of, like, really, um, you know, effective ways of jumping through, you know, food and shopping and gambling and, and that sort of thing. And those sequences were really nice because it, it was, like, it was a really, I think, a quick change in gear. But it also showed that, you know, it was also a quick way to show that, you know, Marie Antoinette, as she was going into this new... This, you know, this discovering the side of her where she's being comfortable in this queen position. Um, and she has no more worries anymore because, you know, they they wanted her to have a, a child and she had she had children. She had a son. And then and then, you know, now there's nothing. She just needs to, you know, be a mother and, you know, kind of because she doesn't need to do anything anyways. It's not her taking care of her kid anyways. <laughs> um, and then, you know, she just, she can just relax and she can be in her world. And that's why she's, you know, they, she, she moves out of the, you know, the Versailles palace, right? Yes. I mean, uh, she's, but now, I mean, obviously in the second half, I mean, it spends a lot of time with her at uh, Petit Tranon, which is a yeah. small chateau in the, in the park of Versailles. And I mean, here she's she's so wrapped up in the the grandeur of everything. I mean, she's completely oblivious to like what's happening meanwhile in France. I mean, there's food shortages and there's financial crisis. I mean, it, you get hints of this as the fact that she's like unable to fill her charitable donations, and none of it really matters to her. I mean, she's more interested in, in as I said, just 
wandering around the grounds and she seems to be drunk half the time but she's probably just more drunk under the the lifestyle and just how she has yeah. so little care in the world that she can spend her days just like hanging out with her friends like having mm. tea and, and then, harassing the yeah, garden finding herself a little boy toy <laughs> i know in actual uh pheasant and um, yeah <laughs> yeah i mean the actual the 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 in terms of this affair, I mean, it's unknown whether it was actually consummated as we see in the film, but it's also said that King Louis was obviously aware of it, but he was actually quite fond of Ferson and actually, and was happy for him and Antoinette to carry on their fling. Um, he apparently had no qualms about this, which I have no idea why why not, but uh, apparently it was not a big, uh, big deal to him, so... I think it's, I think, I think that, you know, what Louis had for Marie Antoinette was more like, you know, he was fascinated by her because she didn't like, especially, I guess, based on this film, okay, I know nothing about history of it, but based on this film, I feel like Louis became interested in her first and gave her a second glance when they were at that theater and she got up when nobody did to clap and that everybody followed her to clap. And I think that that impressed him. That impressed him a lot because she was kind of like this symbol of freedom that he didn't have. You know, he was so, he always grew up with this, you know, lockdown and this kind of tradition, which was so, you know, normal every day. Someone would come in and change you and then someone would bring you breakfast at this time and you'd be just doing all these things under everybody's supervision. Whereas she's not afraid to, you know, break out of this, uh, this pattern a little and be herself. Yeah. And I feel that that's that's what was attracting him to, you know, be able to have these, you know, son, be able to, you know, have relationships with her um, and be more be more intimate with her. But if you were to say whether he was really in love with her, I think at a certain point it was only a sense of responsibility and that she was his queen. And he was I think he knows that, you know, his happiness might not be with her and you know her happiness might not be with him and i i feel that that's that's what it is you know like she's away she's doing her stuff she's not bothering him about things um you know everything that needs to be done between them is done already oh definitely so and you get the sense that obviously when she's out out in the countryside and he's carrying on doing whatever we assume to guess hunting and having a good time doing whatever he's doing and the fact that they, you know, that he can, when he feels, when he needs her to be by his side, all he needs to do is ride out in the country and, you know, request her that she accompany him. And you can see that they have this, this bond, even though how romantic it is, it's hard to, hard to say. I mean, yeah. certainly she's, uh, she welcomes him, his advances when he's, when he has the birds and bees explained to him through, um, through the terminology of lock making. Mm-hmm. Um, which it's you know there's some dispute over whether that did or didn't happen although it is obviously mentioned the duke obviously did brag about it in letters to Antoinette's mother as we see in in the film so it's i would not take this film as a history lesson if you're asked to write a paper obviously. on Antoinette, don't use this as a history lesson <laughs> <laughs> this this is as i said this is a fantasy that we're watching here and as I said, it's a very much feels like a very much rich girl fantasy. I mean, we've constantly seen rich girls throughout the past in other productions, such as like Blair in Gossip Girl, who have this fascination with Antoinette and what she represents. And this is very much the same case here. Um, but for my myself, I mean, it's it sort of loses its momentum in the second half. In the first half, there's, yeah. there's great momentum. As I said, we get plenty of like grandeur as i said we get copious amounts of food porn so people like myself who just enjoy seeing large amounts of cake on the screen are very well serviced as well um people want to see you know this fantasy of like versailles we get you can understand with the spiritness of antoinette the fact because when she's first introduced she's very sort of meek and it was very surprising how how she quickly she takes to it i mean Mm -hmm. she is transferred over to France with nothing. I mean, she even has a pug taken away because she has to enter France with nothing. Um, yeah. Like her friends. And yeah, and have a French dog. She can have all kinds of French dogs that she Poodle. wants. And I was like, what's a French dog? <laughs> I don't, I, I, that's the only French dog I know. 
Um, they didn't have poodles. Yeah, <laughs> Those I mean, her, with dogs her pug mops, <laughs> which was taken away from her. Uh, Count Mercer did actually arrange to have it sent to her after her marriage. So while it's the while we see the pug taken away from her in the film, in real life she did get reunited with her beloved pug. So, but I think it 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 serves its purpose in the film as the fact that you know you enter with nothing. You are basically stripped down and you are rebuilt into this image of what France needs. Um, and just that political uh, thing, but she's I say when she gets settled into, when she gets the the rules of this world, she has this real sort of spirit, which you said already. Uh, when she sort of stands up at the theater and starts clapping, and you can understand why King, his grandfather, likes her so much because he she embodies so much of what he is. Um, she's this spirited yeah. entity in this very uptight society where everyone's sort of like playing by these sort of rules and traditions and they're the ones breaking the rules and traditions because as I said they're royals they can do what they want and it's almost like she knows that even though no one ever bothers to like question this that you know once she becomes royal she can just do what she wants there's never a question of what should I be doing this should I is this going to affect anything it's like once she's got her feet under the table and she's crown queen it's sort of like all bets off of what she's going to do and as I said she embarks on an affair and quite happy to gamble away the royal finances and uh, hold lavish parties while everyone's suffering food shortage she's gorging herself on cake so to much of the strains of I want candy which I thought was just perfect pairing that was like the real turning point it's like okay now she's she's Antoinette She's the internet we we think you know when she's when you yes. hear um I want candy it's sort of like no now she's she's not this meat girl from uh, Austria anymore she's she's this uh fantasy queen here who's as I said she's just living this lavish lifestyle this fan, rich girl fantasy and uh, yeah it's just a shame that but I think. You know, but I think that that's the that's the charm of the second part. Um, while I I don't really like the second part too much, um, I think that you know the fact that the second part was really her. Not only was it that she you know she moved away to somewhere else most of the time in like a countryside area, but it was more like she was free from all those rules at the palace, and she could still enjoy. The lavish lifestyle of being a royal, but be herself a little bit more, you know, not have to worry about all these eyes looking at her. And she had like the people that she wanted with her, like, you know, the Duchess, which is played uh, really well by Rose Byrne. Um, so, you know, I mean, that, I think that, you know, there's there is a lot if you think uh, if, if you know, I took a little bit more time as we're discussing now and I'm starting to see like little things that I feel that really makes this, you know, a Coppola film and those little touches she did and those little transitions in character. And I find, you know, like Coppola is really great at making and building these uh, kind of like character studies sort of thing and really like focusing on just these character developments. Um, you know, whether the execution yeah. is great or not, that really, you know, depends Definitely on the so. person. It's, um, it's funny how <laughs> she's still able to work in these trademarks such as, um, like a female character looking out of the window and doing this pair, this feet, looking at this sort of crossroads of their life. And as we obviously have with Antoinette, she's looking out the carriage window, and we have like the light coming through the for the trees when we have like the scenes of the hunting and when she's obviously in the countryside. So I love the fact that she's still able to work in her trademarks as a director, even though the period you wouldn't think would allow for such shots to exist, but she still manages to work it in. And I think the fact that she so frequently breaks the rules. Here, much like Antoinette, um, with you know what she's going to do with this this question drama, it, it's sort of like a she. As I said, I think she makes the right move by not making it another stuffy costume drama. You know, saying you know if I want to put a sushi in the banshee's track in here, I'm gonna put sushi in the banshee's track. It's gonna create a fragile, dreamlike world, um, and everything's gonna hinge on a sort of knife edge of whether this is gonna work or not. But just damn it for trying it, and I love the fact that. You know, I think that that's, that, that is the charm of this movie because while it's kind of like, you know, it is a costume drama, but it defines itself because, you know, costume dramas are most popular done in, in, in the UK. And in the UK, yes. it's very uptight. It's very, you know, to the, you know, everything is done very 
royal, very beautiful. You use beautiful classical music, orchestra music, and that sort of thing. And what defines hers, and I feel that, you know, really gives her a change is that not only is it done by, you know, like an American, <laughs> but it's also the fact that, you know, she's doing some kind of Europe history, but it's more of a biography of a person loosely based on this historical character. And she decides to, you know, clash you know, add in, you know, she's like, what are rules, you know? Doesn't matter. Doesn't mean when I do history, I have to do some orchestra music. I can go and do contemporary music, do some modern stuff, um, you know, uh, punk music or whatever, you know, and give it its own style. And I think that, you know, that really gives it its uniqueness. And, you know, something that, you know, like I said before, the things I like the most about this is not really the execution of the movie or the story itself, but more, you know, like individually the character or, you know, like the soundtrack and even like the choice of colors for the costume and, and that sort of stuff. Like you have all these pastel colors and you have these um, odd color choices and it, it's a very colorful movie, which is, you know, very different compared to, you know, obviously it's, you know, uh, fairly, I guess it's like, you know, they got to run for their lives at the end. So it's not a great ending for Marie Antoinette. But, you know, overall, it's a lot more lighthearted experience than, say, you know, Virgin Suicides or Lost in Translation even, who, you know, tackles both, you know, one tackles loneliness and one tackles, you know, like... Yeah. Um, coming of age. Oh, definitely. Way. I think she cuts it off at the right point historically in the fling of Versailles. Um, obviously, Antoinette is obviously headed into the guillotine, so it's not a good time for her, but I think rather than end on such a dour note, it sort of ends when the fantasy ends. So at the end, we see from the start of the dream through to the end of the dream, just that key period here, and I think that's why that certainly is a smart move on her point, part rather than doing a full history of this character. Uh, just to keep it in the sort of key part which we want to see um, rather than just like the downfall and just end it on this bleak note and I think as I said it pushes it at two hours so I really don't want to go into a third hour of this um, so but yeah. yeah it's certainly still not my favourite of her film um, but there's certainly elements that I do enjoy enjoy throughout and I certainly love the the risk taking that she obviously takes with, with this film and to uh, to create a unique and unique view that she does so um mm-hmm. it should be noted okay. that uh, all the cakes were remade daily and when you obviously uh consider just the amount of cakes in the show that's hell of a production it's made by Laudry. oh no way um so yeah i mean if you're a fan of as i say if you're a fan of food on film this film certainly delivers uh on that prospect and we're certainly i think it's going to affect when we get into further watching a couple of the picks i have for this and what you compare it with so well um alain dillon was originally going to be casting the film and he met sophia coppola for dinner and um he actually brought the director a huge bouquet of flowers and explained that he did not think this was the type of role that his father his fans would appreciate him in but privately at the same time speculated that the french icon did not have confidence in a young american director to do justice to a film um in this period of french history um the film critically was received very warmly by critics uh there was a couple of boos when it premiered at Cannes, um which did lead to a lot of people saying that you know it was a very diverse audience but so roger ebert said that you know there was only a couple of boos from the foreign press and the whole thing had sort of been blown out of proportion so but I mean, generally, the film isn't her most successful. I mean, it was budgeted at 40 million, made 60.9 million um, on its return, which isn't particularly great. Um, but, you know, it still managed to gain a lot of sort of like awards, um, certainly in terms of uh, the Academy Awards, where it won Best Costume Design. Um, and it also won the Cinema Prize of French National Education System at the 2006 Cannes Films Awards. So. Critically, it was very, very praised and certainly the award show, but it, this isn't certainly her most successful film to date. Um, did you notice a young Tom Hardy <laughs> amongst the American soldiers? Uh, no. <laughs> yes, he's uh, when they, after the scene where, where she's so greeting the returning oh, okay. Americans, uh, American generals, they have the, uh, 
they have the the dinner party where they're playing the name game outside and smoking opium and uh it's a very youthful looking tom hardy that's amongst them <laughs> I, might, I might have made the point of like oh hey that person looks familiar but who is it <laughs> i know i had to do a bit of a double take and like then go into uh, imdb and it's like is that the same person i think uh matthew Olmerick also shows up as a man at the mass ball who i just love matthew Olmerick. so anytime he shows up even if it's just a little cameo i'm just really happy he was in there so mm. um Something we didn't touch on as well, especially with the fact that everything she does is have an audience. Um, how did you find the birthing sequence of her first child where it's like 40 people in the room watching her give birth? Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's not that surprising after the fact, you know, that she gets, she has to stand naked while she's waiting for people to dress her in the beginning, right? So it, it felt like it was normal that people were watching her give birth because people just like to watch everything that she's doing. True. And I mean... Back in the, this sort of days, people would like turn up to public executions yeah. and autopsies and <laughs> all sorts of. Uh, I, I feel like it, grotesque I feel things. like it's just the rules in the palace that you know the people are there to watch the queen give birth, and that's a big deal. You know, you wanna you wanna welcome this, you know, this future prince. You know that that's coming yeah. to the world, and it's not it's not too it's not too weird. I think this is something again I appreciate about the film is like when when we compare it to its British counterparts and everyone's very prim and proper, and people in the seventeenth century weren't exactly prim and proper. You know, they were off doing things in the woods and thinking they were getting closer to God by engaging in various acts and stuff. And you know, there was a lot of kinky business going on. And I think the fact the film touches upon it. I mean, we have to say we have scenes of people smoking opium. We have this grandeur and people turning up to watch. Marriage and give birth and stuff. I mean, I love the realism of that. Is you know, it's the sort of thing that you want to see from this sort of period. You don't want to see people just acting prim and proper and you know, speaking all polite and being nice to each other while attending dances and being married off at a whim. So, so, in terms of costume drama, I like this one. So, <laughs> the one that's the least give, like it, the costume, normal costume drama. It, the one that distanced itself as far away from the British film productions as possible, I like. So, <laughs> this one, because it still feels too close to home whenever I watch like costume dramas because that's all we tend to produce. And seeing as we're just surrounded by history around here, we're just constantly tripping over the things. So, um, it doesn't hold the same sort of appeal like to like a uh, American audience who's obsessed with London and you know, cobbled streets and all that sort of. <laughs> that Dickensian vision it's all like you know that does nothing for me I'd rather I where compared to like if I see like um these visions like the American indie sort of landscape and just sort of any sort of visions of America always hold more of an appeal and I just I guess this is the trade-off Americans uh and and people outside of Britain are just interested in like this uh this historical vision of what Britain is and what I think a lot of people assume we are since every time you hear someone talk about Britain we're either Cockney or we're super posh those are the two accents everyone goes to <laughs> we apparently all sound like a Dick Van Dyke chimney sweep so. <laughs> well I mean I, I, I get where you're coming from because you know I you know when when we talk about you know Asian cinema I'm a lot more I'm a lot more of like the type which is like oh well you know things that got to America when I've seen it, like, for 20 years of my life already. doesn't appeal to me as much as, you know, when it first got here, you know. Like, you know, like, it, it's it's a big deal that people find that I... Because I, I'm not a big fan of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and everybody else is. No. And I'm just like, but the thing is, I've watched this stuff forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's not got anything new, was to... Obviously, to Western audiences, it's like it's all new concept. It's the idea of like where it's as I said to with Crunchy Tiger and Dragon, we've essentially got sense and sensibility with swords, and that holds a great appeal to the West because we don't come up with this sort of thing, <laughs> and we don't have people like flying through the airs and fighting in bamboo trees and all these sort of elements that a film like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon provides. So this is all very unique and interesting yeah. to ourselves. Yeah, because at, because at that moment, you know, the closest thing we had to, you know, Chinese cinema was, you know, Bruce Lee. And he wasn't, you know, the flying in the air <laughs> type. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's it's a change, right? And I, and I think that that's the same thing for, you know, period dramas. Because, like, obviously me and you were different on that level because, you know, being from Canada, I also have that, you know, 
love for a period drama, but mine stems a lot from the fact that I love watching, I, I love reading, like, Austin books and stuff like that. So I have a different sort of, like, you know, um, I, I appreciate a lot of the classic stuff that, that you know, it, it isn't made anywhere else in the world but in the UK. So I don't really have a choice but to go there. <laughs> That's, what, I mean, that in, in, in respect was also what I, made me really so interested to see what you made of this film because I know, obviously, you've been a fan of Austin and the world of Austin doesn't fall too very far from the world of Antoinette. Um, so I was very curious to see, obviously, what you would have made of it. And I knew at the same time this was this was going to be the tricky film with this filmography. Um, because the other films I've all... I've got, apart from The Beguiled, which I've, it's going to be a first-time watch myself. So um, I had sort of, like, opinions and ideas of what it was. And Marie Antoinette never resonated with me the two times I'd seen it prior to this. Um, so I think going, watching it this time, I appreciate it a little more. There's certain elements I appreciated more than I did previously, perhaps coming to it as an older viewer, but um, certainly it's still not. I don't hold it in the same regard that our friend The Verne does, which I'm very curious to know why. So maybe we can get a voicemail or we'll get, uh, we'll get some word from him and he can explain himself. <laughs> what is it you like about this movie, Verne? Is it cake or powdered bosoms where's 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 the allure lie for you my friend <laughs> uh, we're waiting for an answer we're waiting for it <laughs> we have we sent him over we sent him over a very nice message you know um and uh hopefully hopefully we'll have something have some sort of return on that but who knows <laughs> uh so are we going into further views? yes um, so further viewing, if you like Marie Antoinette or you're looking for something similar, I mean, where do you sort of go next? Oh boy, the world is the limit, right? <laughs> there are so many historical dramas that you can pair with this one. And it's ridiculous because the the first two films of Coppola is almost like you had to really dig deep to find things that worked with it. At least for me. Yeah. For this one, I mean, right off, I already was watching this, and I already was like, oh, the other Boleyn girl. I hated the movie, but <laughs> it pairs well with this one. That was on my <laughs> list as well. I actually, that was one of my films that um, my wife had had uh, had picked randomly back when we first started coursing. She was, I said, you know, just just pick anything when we were at the store, and she picked that. And I was surprised that she enjoyed the other Boleyn girl. And this seems to always happen. She always picks these movies I think I'm never going to enjoy, but I always end up really loving, so... Damn her and her good film choices. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't share the same love for it, so I'm gonna not talk about that so much. Um, but the other one, obviously, was um, Anna Karenina uh, okay. with the, you know, lovely Kira Knightley. Um, so yeah, I mean, Anna Karenina plays a lot, sim a lot similar to Marie Antoinette, but a lot more dramatic, uh, less colorful, <laughs> that sort of deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll start with those two. There, there, there's probably a ton more, um, but you know, these two were the first two that really came to my mind that had a lot of, you know, the, um, you know, those the 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 royal lifestyle, um, people, you know, getting married into a, a family, you know, into into a new kind of a new world in that sense, uh, and you know, embracing the royal life in that in that way as well. Very nice. Um, for myself, uh, first off, I would have to highlight Punkett McLean, which is a um, another contemporary history lesson. And this one uh, features uh, Robert Carlyle and Johnny Lee Miller playing Highwaymen. Um, again, this was released in 1999, the greatest movie year ever. And uh, it's a film that sort of like disappeared. As I say, it came out and disappeared. It had a lot of buzz when it came out. And... It's uh, had something of a little bit of a cool following over here in the UK, but it's, uh, as I said, another 17th century drama, and as I said, it's uh, got that contemporary edge to it, uh, which certainly when I look at when you had those moments of, like, New Wave uh, on appearing on the soundtrack here, they just instantly made my mind instantly go back to that film. Um, and you mentioned already the other Blingo, which was going to be my other pick. Um, so now, obviously, turning our focus on to the other 
important aspect to the film and that would be food porn uh so if you want more food porn definitely check out uh, angley's eat drink man woman uh which features an opening scene of a chef preparing this elaborate banquet but it looks absolutely exquisite uh, the film itself stars a middle-aged uh, chef who's losing his ability to taste um and is struggling to deal with with uh, this uh, change from which eventually which is essentially stopping him from doing what he loves which is obviously to cook um the other one i would also go with is john fraffle's chef again this isn't uh, on the same sort of grandeur as its food trucks but it does feature a very sexy grilled cheese uh which if you watch the his cooking show on netflix uh, i think it's the chef show they actually show you how to make that very sandwich so you can watch the film and then get inspired and go and find out how to make your very own um so yeah those are my slightly random picks but that's what i would pay if you like marionette and certainly if you want more food porn i think that's something that's missing from cinema we need more films with elaborate cakes and just exquisitely shot food do you think yeah pretty much <laughs> i mean when you were talking about food porn i was like i was like oh this is not what i expected or something is is really good too the it's like a chinese film yeah. it's on netflix right now uh yeah with takeshi kaneshiro it's 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 fantastic i think i i think i did it on one of the friday film clubs i believe you uh, did yes you did yeah um, yeah yeah it was a i really really loved it it's like a romantic comedy it doesn't have any history to it but the food in it is mm, very very beautiful <laughs> come up on next what do where are we going to next kim we are going to 2010 somewhere Somewhere, the probably uh, the hidden gem of uh, the Coppola filmography, as it uh, as I say, it was released in 2010. Very similar in many ways to Lost in Translation, as it features um, this um, actor Johnny Marco, played by Stephen Dwarf, who visit, receives a visit from his young daughter Cleo, played by Ellie Fanning, and it's basically about the two reconnecting and forming uh, from this bond, as I said, between wayward father and delightful daughter. And, as I say, it's uh, very similar in many ways to Lost in Translation, so it's going to be interesting to compare the two um, to obviously see see what you make of it, and certainly see if we can find out why it's been so forgotten. So uh, that's coming up on our next episode, uh, but in the meantime, if you haven't done already, uh, please do like and subscribe wherever you happen to be listening to us you can also catch us on all the social media platforms, be it Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, uh, you can check that out where we post our interesting bits and pieces um as well as updates for the show we post uh interesting behind the scenes shots and just you know fun perfect shots from the films that we cover on the show uh you can also check out our full archive at moviesandtpodcast.wordpress.com as well as on there you can check out our friday film club where every friday myself and kim pick a movie each to form a weird and wonderful double feature. Sometimes there's a theme, sometimes there's not. It's just uh, our chance to highlight the films that we love, and uh, we also include on there the roundup of any sort of podcasts and articles that uh, our friends and fellow members of the LAM are posting out there that uh, we feel that you should definitely be checking out. So, so um, until next time, well, thank you, Tim, as always, to my co-host Kim, and thank you everyone for listening. And we will be back next time looking at 2010s somewhere. So, good night. Thank <laughs> you.